0: copy of the Word of God, and let's turn to the book of Nehemiah, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, if that helps you pop, uh, find the, where it's populated in the Bible, uh, where it's at, Nehemiah chapter 2, we just basically have gotten started in the book of Nehemiah. Last week we talked about the fact that it was about prayer as well, and we're going to be talking about prayer again today because, uh, because we need to, because that's what's there in the text, and I hope we learn some things about it. You know, there are people in the Bible who are absolutely, or at least it looks to us anyway as we look at people, absolutely wonderful when it comes to praying. It seems like when they pray, mountains move. When they pray, things happen and things get done. And we often have been envious of that and wish that we could pray like that. We want to be great in the spiritual discipline of prayer just like they were, uh, just like them. When we look at people who had their prayers answered, and we search to find the formula of success, apparently, uh, and we study them, uh, because we want to be able to pray like that. So we think we need to find that. We need to know exactly how you pray and what you do to pray. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in the New Testament, uh, and when the disciples asked him, how do you pray, he said, here's how you pray. And then he started off with what we call the Lord's Prayer, our Father who is in heaven. Holy be your name. So prayer is something that you can learn because there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. Uh, But I want you to know that there is no secret formula to prayer. Uh, It's not like if you just say the right things, God has to do it. Uh, You think, well, doesn't he? And I mean, if I did it the right way, if I followed what so-and-so wrote in his book about how you pray, then God would just have to do that, right? Well, that's not necessarily true, friends. There is no secret formula to prayer. Some prayers have been very short and very powerful. Some prayers are longer and not as powerful. If I had to boil it all down in terms of what we need when we pray and have a prayer life, which I hope you do. I hope if you're married that you and your spouse pray together often. I hope that you pray by yourself often. I hope you believe that God is listening to you and wants you to pray. But if you boil it all down, what do we need in prayer? It would consist of basically just two things. The first is that God's ears, the Bible says, are inclined to the righteous person. God is listening to those who are righteous on the earth. Righteous the way he defines righteousness, not a righteousness that we make up on this earth. Uh, Secondly, it is that the righteous pray for the accomplishing of the will of God. So I want to be a righteous person when I'm praying, and I need to know that when a righteous person prays, It is their goal to pray that the will of God will be done. Now, those are two very simple simple things. You can mark that down and keep those, and it'll change your prayer life. I I can guarantee that. So my answer about prayer is live righteously and seek to do the will of the Lord God in everything that you pray for. Those add up to being a humbling of ourselves before God because he's in charge. We aren't with a heart that is righteous, asking for the accomplishment of God's will in my life, in your life, in the lives of others around us, and in situations like in our country, as Brad was praying for that a little this morning. Uh, This applies whether one is asking, praising, or giving thanks to God. Now, here is how that all came together in Nehemiah's life one day as he was trying to do this. He is, He's the cupbearer of the king. We talked a little bit last week about what that meant. It was a very high position. You're close to the king all the time. He's listening to you. He becomes your friend. You become his. He's, he's really close to Artaxerxes, the great king. He is in a position where you don't just float in and out if you want to. You don't tag team and say, I don't you know, feel that great today. Why don't you take it? Because the king only has so many people he can trust and the cupbearer tastes the wine before he drinks it to make sure it doesn't have poison in it so the king doesn't die. He even chose the wine the king would would drink. Sometimes he had private conversations with the king, and the king would sometimes even ask what he thought about a situation, a very, very high position to be a cupbearer. And that's where we find Nehemiah, but Nehemiah's heart is not in in the room where the throne is, where all the business of the kingdom takes place right now. His heart is about eight to 900 miles away in a place called Jerusalem. He is worried about the temple. He's worried about the fact that it doesn't have a wall, a fortress, a citadel around it. And he's worried about the fact that Jerusalem itself does not have a wall around it that amounts to anything. Somebody burned the gates of the citadel. They burned the gates of the wall. They tore the stones down. It is a mess. It's really not even safe to live there. And he's thinking through that, and he wants to go, and he wants to build that wall. How do I get away from one of the greatest kings on earth to be able to go to build a worship center for my God and even ask if it's okay if I build a wall around that city, which might mean to the king that you're trying to protect yourself from even my power. And so this is a tough deal. Well, this is what's going to happen. Let's read it in uh, Nehemiah 2, 1 to 8. And it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine, and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. I mentioned my Sunday school class, there's a phrase hanging out in the middle between chapter 1 and chapter 2, and it fits with both chapters. It it is a good summary of chapter 1, and then it says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. So now you know why he's the one doing that, verse 2. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. So apparently the king is also a psychologist, and he's looking at the way that Nehemiah is acting, and they're in the courtroom that day, Uh, the court of the throne is what I'm saying, and he wants to know, why are you uh, acting like you are? He said, I've seen this before, this is sadness of heart. We would look at it and say, this guy's depressed. And he wants to know why that is, because he said, uh, you're not sick. He said, why is your face sad, verse 2, though you're not sick? This is sadness of heart. Then Nehemiah was very much afraid. Even so, you need to understand that it's a powerful position, but a lot rides on the cupbearer. If the cupbearer shows up and he's not happy at work, if he's not joyful at work, if he's moping around, the king is going to think one of two things, either You know something about what's going to happen to me and my throne, or you're going to do something against my throne. It was against the law for them to not be happy in the presence of the king. Uh, Imagine going to your work, and it was the law. You had to be happy all the time you were there. He wasn't happy because this is really getting to him. I said to the king, let the king live forever. So what that means is if he's willing to say, king, live forever, that there's no conspiracy. We're not doing anything here we shouldn't do. I just have sadness of heart for another reason. Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, meaning Jerusalem, uh, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate, and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. So the king is asking him, Well, what do you want me to do? And he has a silent prayer. And he prays to the God of heaven because he knows what's about to take place is not something that normally can take place in Artaxerxes' court i said to the king if it please the king and if your servant has found favor before you send me to judah to the city of my father's tombs that i may rebuild it then the king said to me the queen sitting beside him how long will your journey be and when will you return so it pleased the king to send me and i gave him a definite time you know what that means Whatever he said in that little prayer between the time the king said, what I I need to do for you, and when he said what he wants, he was praying to God that the king would respond in a positive way and let him do what he wants to do. And so he said, in verse 7, If it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, uh, meaning the Euphrates, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. That he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress. What a word to use in front of a king who's in charge of everything. Uh, I would think I'd pick a different word, but he's telling him the truth. He's going right at it. There's going to be a fortress around the temple. And uh, that fortress is meant to keep people out. For the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city. So now we're talking about two walls. For the house to which I will go, which is the temple. And the king granted them to me. You might ask, well, why would he do that? And the answer is, because the good hand of my God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces. So we understand he's going to be allowed to go with that request, and he takes off, but that's for next week. When we look at verses 1 through 3, what I want us to see there is that the believer, so this, uh, this applies to us, those of us who know Jesus as our Savior, uh, the believer is emotionally affected by the things of God not being in place. In other words, we are in tune with what God is doing. We know what His Word says. We want His Word to take place. And we're concerned when something about the Word of God is not taking place, either in our own life, the life of the church, or the life of a Christianity in America, whatever it is. In chapter 1, Nehemiah humbles himself and prayed to God for the forgiveness of Israel's sins and for the return of God's people to their land. So two things. He prayed corporately for the forgiveness of their sins, and then he also prayed uh, that God would be able to let him return to the land and build the wall. Well, why the great push to go back to Jerusalem in the first place? I mean, beyond the issue that, uh, yeah, my uh, family's tombs are there, uh, what, about, what about why I really want to go back? They're, they're dead people. Well, what about if that was where your home was? Probably it's been destroyed. Well, it is because Jerusalem is the one place on earth that God chose for his people to dwell with him and to worship him. And I don't have those verses uh, here this morning. It was in last week's. The Bible's very clear. One place in all the world God chose for the people of Israel to meet together and worship him. And that's what God said, I want the temple in, in a place that's going to be called Jerusalem. All right? It used to be called Salem, but that's where he wants it. That's where Abraham was going to sacrifice his son, but God stopped him. God loves that real estate. God wants people to worship him from there in the Old Testament. And these spiritual leaders that we run across in these books, there are people who want what God's wanting. There are people who want to lead others to do what God wants them to do. People like Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and Haggai and Zechariah and a host of godly people. So that's why they want to go there, because... That's where we worship God, and it's not done yet. We want it to be done. So let me throw out a principle here. You and I should have the commitment that if something is important to Jesus Christ, it is important to us. All that is important to God should be a top-tier importance for us as well. So, because we've been able to pin this down in verse 1, on April the 13th, 445 B.C., Oh, uh, that means before Christ. We find Nehemiah about his duty for the King of Persia. He's the cupbearer. Probably there were more than one, but uh, he was the main cupbearer. Others would have to come take his place once in a while, but there wasn't many. Mind you, he has been praying for the opportunity to go back to the land and uh, lead the rebuilding efforts in Jerusalem. If you go from where he started in verse, uh, I'm sorry in chapter one, where we are today, He has been praying for this now for four months. He's been praying that he could go back and rebuild for four months now, every day. In all that time, he never allowed himself to act depressed in the presence of the king. He wants this more than anything else. But he always was chipper and the way he was supposed to be when he was in the presence of the king. The issue is that it was forbidden for a servant of the king to show unhappiness in the presence of the king or to be negative in some way. If that ever happened, the king might take it as a clue that he's in danger of some uprising against him. The penalty for the negative person in the presence could of the king could actually even be death. So it's a serious thing. So what Nehemiah must have done is to put on a happy face for the last four months when he served the king. But now in verse 2 we learn that Nehemiah can't hold back his emotions Anymore, they're showing the sadness, or we might say the depression that's in in his heart, in the king's presence. Friends, this is a dangerous development because of what the king might do. It just shows us how much this issue meant to Nehemiah about Jerusalem, the place of worship for Yahweh's people, because it's in disarray. This matters to him. The king recognizes depression when he sees it, and he calls it literally in the text a sadness of heart. I like that. Uh, when I think about people that have been in depression, I think there's somebody that's sad in their heart, and he, he just nailed that for him. That's right. That's exactly what it is. The king knows Nehemiah isn't physically sick, so he's wanting to know what's wrong with you. Obviously, the king is uh, revealing a caring attitude toward Nehemiah. They are friends. And he may be wondering what's going on here, Uh, I maybe I'm in danger, or is something just going on with the cupbearer? Well, this explains why Nehemiah was afraid to bring it up before the king. Sad is the word also for evil or calamity in the Hebrew language. Here it most likely means poor in appearance, sullen, a heaviness, or repressed, or depression. In verse 3, quickly, Nehemiah respectfully relates his commitment to the king in the words, let the king live forever. That's my wish for you, not, you know, we have people waiting outside to take your life or anything like that. Surely with all of the time these men were together, Artaxerxes knew that he was being sincere. The king had asked why he was so sad of heart. So he takes the opportunity to answer the king for the question that the king had asked. He has permission now to speak his heart. I don't see any evidence that Nehemiah did this on purpose, acted this way in front of the king. I don't see any evidence that he did it to get attention like sometimes we do when we're not feeling well, uh, wanting people to know that we're upset or we're we're just not feeling the way we should. But because of the issue that was at hand, it really meant that much to Nehemiah. God uh, had an issue, so Nehemiah had an issue. And the issue was the temple is not uh, where it should be, behind the citadel and behind the walls. Uh, He cannot hide it anymore. This is the mark of a heart of a righteous person. Remember we talked about righteous people praying to God? The Bible talks about that. That's one of the keys to prayer. Go before God as a clean vessel, as someone who's trying to live the way they should live. Take care of any sin that we have before him. God's issues are on his heart, and it bothers him that there is no resolution. It bothers him that there's no resolution. Years ago, when there was a tornadic kind of a wind, or at least a really strong wind, it lifted the back of the church roof off here. And you could see coming down those accordion doors there, a sheet of water just pouring in through the roof and down through here. Well, nobody said, well, you know what, I've got other things to do. We can get to putting the roof back together some other day. It was right away. People showed up, and we started re-sheathing the roof of the church, and somebody was there soon to, to uh, re-shingle. Uh, somebody else cut the back of the eve off so the wind couldn't catch it anymore, rebuilt it all. Uh, we, it's kind of like we can't sleep until that's fixed. Now, this is just a church building. It's not the temple. Imagine if it's a temple where that's where you go to meet God and, and where God's people are, and these people care about it. He cares about it 900 miles away tells the king that the issue is the destruction of the physical structures of his homeland continue to be in disarray. He says that it is a disgraceful thing for his dead fathers. The king just might care about those things, and it turns out that he does, because I think he cares about Nehemiah. In verses 4 to 6, we learn that we pray before speaking and then outline what it is that we desire. Sometimes people put us on the spot. We have to make a decision. Sometimes we don't know what to do or we know what we want to do, but we haven't been able to ask. And so we stop and we pray. We say in our heads, Oh, Lord, help me in this situation. I don't know how this is going to turn out. I really need you, and I need you to make a decision here. I need you to help me with this. And you do that inside, and then bravely you go ahead and then you do what you need to do or say what you need to say. The king demonstrates that Yahweh was indeed working in his heart, because Nehemiah prayed in verse 11 of chapter 1, O Lord, I beseech you, may your your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Speaking about King Artaxerxes, Nehemiah had asked for compassion and success in Artaxerxes' presence and right now before his eyes, it's happening. It's happening. God has answered. The king asks him outright, What is your request? Be specific with me. See, he hasn't been specific yet. In regard to your depression over this desolation of your father's tombs, the first thing that he does before he answers is to blurt out this prayer to God in his heart. We assume he does this in the silence of his heart. Well, what would you be praying here in this moment between the king asking? and uh, what, what you want done. I think one of the things that can guide us in that is Ephesians 3 verse 20. The first thing I need to know when I pray to God is this, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond what we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory. In other words, I'm not just talking to a guy across the street I'm just not talking to anybody. I am talking to the God who created the universe, who created me, who holds everything together by his power, and is the one that is sovereign in all things. That's who I'm talking to do. He can do anything. There's nothing too difficult for God. And so go ahead and ask. Know who you're talking to. Know what God desires. What does God want? Well, Daniel had prophesied Artaxerxes' permission being given for the purpose to go back and build the walls 95 years earlier in Daniel 9.25. Although he doesn't use the name Artaxerxes, he says you will be released to go back to build the city. So Nehemiah knows this is the will of God. And God has called me to do it, and that's what I'm praying for. Well, do you ever ask God for things that are not his will? yeah I think I think we do all the time when it's something we we want, and James says you sometimes ask for things just to spend them on your own lusts. It really has nothing to do with me or or the ministry or something like that. but sometimes we have asked. Have you ever been living in sin and asked God to bless you in what you're doing and asking for? Yeah, I think we've done that too. We rush into God's presence, we want something right away. We don't stop and think about what we did to him yesterday when we denied him in front of our friends or when we were in sin and we did something we shouldn't have done. Now we're at his throne kneeling and saying, oh Lord, give me this. Praying for God's will means that I'm willing to live my life according to God's desires and commands towards me. That's a part of righteousness. Far too many people are making up things and saying God is okay with them. What I'm talking about is people are committing sin today and they say God's okay with it. One of the reasons they think God is okay with it is because they didn't get struck dead when they did it. And when they were doing it, they were having fun with other people who were doing it and they didn't get struck dead either, so God must not care. (laughs) Don't ever be deceived. You can't make up things and say, well, God isn't against drunkenness when God said I am. Keep in mind that he's been praying for four months already. What do you think uh, would be the average time that you pray for something? The average time that you bring something before the throne of God? Well, here's something else that Jesus teaches us about prayer in Luke 18, starting in verse 1. How do we handle prayer? What else do we do? Now, he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Okay, we stop right there. That's God's desire for us in prayer. He says, I'm going to tell you what the truth is, and the truth is I want to show you that you should always pray and not lose heart. You Pray at all times and not lose heart. Don't give up. Don't, Don't quit. Now he's going to give us a story to illustrate his point. And he said it this way. In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God, and he did not respect man. Apparently, he must just respect himself. There was a widow in his city, and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. Now, a widow is somebody in that society that didn't have almost anybody to care about her, to take up her her story, to take up her defense. And so this widow is in a bad way. All she has is the judge. And... Uh, This widow came, give me legal protection. Verse 4, for a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God or respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, she comes here every day. I always hear about this, and he's getting tired of it. I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. He's had it. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, Will not God, who is different than the unrighteous judge, will not God bring about justice for his elect, the believers, who cry out to him day and night, which means all the time. That's a merism in figure of speech. Uh, early in the morning, late at night, all day long. And he will not delay long over them. So God says, don't give up, keep praying. You don't know what's going to happen when. God does, Keep praying. Good stuff for us to know. In verse 5, back in our text in Nehemiah, he kept in mind that he's been praying for four months already, and he appeals humbly to his earthly authority, and he asked to be sent to Judah to rebuild the wall around the temple and the wall around the city, and to build the gates so people can't get in when they're locked. Now, I don't think at this point he was telling all he wanted uh, in the text. Verse 5. But generalizing it so far, and we need to apply that truth that is found in Matthew 10, 16, where it basically teaches God's children that you and I need to be as wise as serpents, as harmless as doves. In wisdom, he was kind of testing the waters, and he said, King, here's what's going on back home. I'd like to build it. That's all he said. And now he sees the king is on board, so it's time to get down to specifics. Let's make sure When I lay it all on the table, as long as we've gotten this far, that the king is still with me. Do you understand what he's asking this guy to let him do? All right, It's like if you owned the neighbor's house or owned the house next door and you rented it out and somebody came and said, hey, I'd like to build a a cement wall around your property and around my house inside and put up steel gates. What? You trying to keep me out? What are you doing? What's going on there? Well, this is exactly what he's asking for. So he is humble, and he respects the king, and he knows that God's in control of the king's heart, right? That Proverbs 21.1, we've talked about it all the time. God has uh, the, the king's heart in his hand, it's like channels of water. He can turn that heart any way he wants it to go. Do you trust that God can do that in your situation? If he has found favor, he says, the king obviously is favorable to Nehemiah. He's clearly demonstrated that. Because Nehemiah obviously has been a trustworthy worker, a confidant, reliable. The king has placed his life in this man's hands on a daily basis. Sure, he trusts you. The king is mostly interested in, well, if I let you go, how long will it take? In verse 6. When do you plan on being back? Now, Nehemiah understands that the king is going to let him do this. It pleases him. He's already asking me, when will you come back? Though it doesn't say here, Nehemiah is going to be gone from the king once he gets his permission, get this, for 12 years. That's quite a ways away. That's, that's a long time to be gone with your favorite cupbearer. But that's what happens because he does come back, as it says in Nehemiah 13.6. This is quite a favor from the king. And then finally in verses 7 and 8. I want us to know that God, for his will does more abundantly than we can ask or think. So we want to be a righteous man or woman. We want to pray out of that righteousness for the will of God to be done. We don't want to give up on our prayers. We want to keep after it. And we need to understand that the one we're talking to can do way more than we're even asking for, no matter how much we're asking for, if it's his will. So in verse 7, He asked for official passage through the king's territories. Uh, These permission slips, these letters to the provincial leaders, are going to let him get safely to Judah. In the beginning of verse 8, here's where the king gets the overall plan that Nehemiah has for his trip. He's very clear. He wants to build beams for the gates of the citadel or the fortress that protects the temple. He wants timber for the walls of the city. Uh, those are going to mostly be made out of stone. And he means for the gates in particular and for the house of God. And that's going to take a permission slip from the guy who is the king's forester who takes care of all the king's forests, Asaph. He he needs a permission slip to get the lumber from him. He gets it. And verse 8b, credit is given to Yahweh because Yahweh is the one who has his good hand on him, on Nehemiah. Yahweh is the one that changed the heart of the king. And when you pray, you need to understand it's not your power. It's not the power of your prayer. It's really not your righteousness. It's, if it's in God's will, he can move mountains. He can change the heart of somebody. He can do things that are unimaginable that we, we don't even think God could do. But because his good hand was on Nehemiah, he was going to be successful. We want God's good hand on us when we're trying to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. Out of the human king's mouth and by his actions, Nehemiah expresses the sovereign hand of God is on Artaxerxes. His heart has been turned in my direction by our great God. And God poured it in the way he wanted it to go. Now, I don't really recommend people go out and buy books on prayer. There's hundreds of them. And there's this formula and that formula. It's really not all that problematic. But we can learn something by looking at a man who got his prayer answered. What what did he do in that? And then you could use it kind of as a little checklist. It's going to be a lot about righteousness and praying for the will of God, the two things we mentioned. But these are in your bulletin, and you can uh, fill them out. Here are some of the elements that led up to God's good hand being with him anyway. It doesn't always work this way. You get that? There, There is no set magic formula. There's nothing magic about any of it. It's a matter of the will of God and our righteousness. So, number one, Nehemiah fasted and prayed. Well, we have to ask, when's the last time I was so uh, interested in something happening and wanting God to do it in a ministry that I went without food so I could spend time praying for it? Nehemiah did that. Number two, he waited for God's timing. He prayed for this every day for four months. Four months! Have you ever prayed that long for anything? Thirdly, he knew exactly what he needed. I have to have materials to build a wall that's going to look a little bit offensive against my king. Fourthly, humbly and respectfully, he submitted his request. It's not going to hurt to ask. Number five, he focused on the exact need for the situation. Now, I know what God wants. He wants me to rebuild And what I need is this kind of timber. I'm going to need some rocks. I'm going to need people to help me. So he focused in on the need. And six, he was willing to forego personal comfort to be a part of the solution. He was willing to get involved himself. (laughs) Have you ever prayed for God to raise up somebody else to do something that you could be doing? Have you ever prayed, God, oh, we got this great need, Lord. Put it on somebody's heart. Well, yeah, since you're praying for it, maybe it's on your heart. You want to do something about it? Uh, don't, don't just pray for God to raise up somebody else. If you really mean it and you're praying about it, God can do anything. Ask him to use you. Now, these are merely actions of righteousness that a righteous man, seeking to accomplish the will of God, did. They're not a formula for how to guarantee your prayers are answered like Nehemiah's work. You can guarantee your prayer will be answered if you pray for what God's will is. Then the thing about praying to a sovereign God is that he is sovereign. He does not have to answer anything we ask him to do. He's God. Sometimes he does the opposite of what we think he should do. That's always surprising. And the righteous person lets God do it which does not somehow negate James 5.16, where it says the prayers of a righteous man, we could say woman, a righteous person, are very effectual, because it's true. There's a guy by the name of Alan Fadling, and he asked us to consider this parable, and I want to share it with you, and then we'll be done. There was once a king who had two servants, one of the servants, for fear of not pleasing his master, rose early each day to hurry along to do all the things that he believed the king wanted done. He didn't want to bother the king with questions about what the work was supposed to be. Instead, he hurried away from project to project from early in the morning until late at night, hoping to do the business of the king. The other servant was also eager to please his master and would rise early as well, but he took a few moments to go to the king and ask him about his wishes for the day and find out just what it was that the king himself desired to be done. Only after such a consultation did this servant step into the work of his day, work comprised of tasks and projects the king himself had expressed a desire for. The busy servant may have gotten a lot done, that means the first servant, by the time the inquiring servant even started his work, But which of them was doing the will of the master and pleasing him? You know the answer to that. So do I. I want to leave you these things, uh, some applications from our text today. Number one, let's ask ourselves this question. How much do we care about the will of God being accomplished? I mean, really, how much do you care? That God gets done what he wants done. And how much do we want to be a part of what's being accomplished? You see, that's how we gain rewards with our Father in heaven who told us that we should be gaining rewards in his name. Secondly, we we need God's help to build too. Paul said he laid a foundation of Jesus Christ and like a wise master builder, he's been building on it. You and I are supposed to be building on it too. Some men's work isn't very good. Others' men's work is very, very quality work. It's good work. When God tests it, it remains. And Paul is basically saying, build on that building with good things that will remain. We are building a spiritual city. And there are ruins everywhere from people who did not take the time to build the way they should have. And the verses for that are 1 Corinthians 3, 9 to 15. They're in your applications there. You can look those up later. It goes along with what I just said. I'm sorry, number three, God is always available to listen to you. God's hours of operation, get this, are always open. And this may make you happy too. You don't have to wear a mask when you pray. Fourth, Nothing is too difficult or impossible for God. Nothing. Nothing. If it is his will, he will do it. And all he's asking us to do is let's get on board with him in our prayers and accomplish what he wants us to accomplish. Let's pray for us. Father, we're people that care about you or we wouldn't even be here. We're people who care about you because we're involved in all kinds of ministries that you've allowed us to have through our church and and outside of our church. We are people who care about your will being done. We're taking a closer look at the end of times in the Bible because we think we're getting awfully close to it. We may not have much time. Help us to be about your work in a very proactive way, in a way that you become our number one priority because we never know the day or the hour that you will call us to be with you. I pray that we would also bring our requests before you, requests that touch your will and your heart and help us to want what you want, not only for others but for our, first, our own lives first. We want to be your people who serve you, that you use to reach other people with the good news that you have given us to preach that Jesus saves, he forgives out of his love, and he transforms lives. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you will take your hymnals and open them to 383, you may stand. and We will close by singing, Open Our Eyes, Lord. Uh Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, may we be warriors of prayer uh, and humble ourselves before you, seeking your will and being willing participants in what you'd have us to do. We just thank you now for your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. you oh. He gave me one.